BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Phantom Files, Sci-Fi Wire podcast about people who really, really love stuff. I'm Jordan Zachern, the features editor here at Sci-Fi Wire, and I'm joined by my good pal and co-host, Emily Gaudette, who is a pop culture reporter at Newsweek. What's up, Emily? Uh, not that much. I'm feeling good. How are you? Oh, not too bad. Uh, doing, we're, we're recording on a Sunday mm-hmm. we're in the studio. First time. Yeah. So first time for everything. Uh, question for you. Yeah. Geekiest thing you did this week. Shoot. Ooh. Um, I organized my closet and I found a collection of like plush Go stuffed on. animals <laughs> and, uh, figurines and action figures that I had forgotten I had. So I then had to go around my apartment and like look for nooks and crannies for all these things to go because I couldn't face getting rid of any of them. What were they? Uh, like I have a lot of Ripley from Alien mm. um, and I have like the Pikachu that we won at Dave and Buster's mm. and an elephant I won at Coney Island. Like a lot of like I have emotional ties to sure. everything. Yeah. yeah, I have emotional ties to Pikachu as well. Yeah. Um, what was the geekiest thing you did this week? <laughs> um, I spent a lot of time examining Yoda designs for a story I was oh, doing. Oh, cool. Um, and apparently they like remake Yoda every time they use him. Hmm. Uh, so there's a lot of different ones. And um, that sent me down like a real Muppet rabbit hole, looking at old puppets. Mm-hmm. And my girlfriend works for Sesame Street, or she worked for Sesame Street, so she gave me some like inside dirt on how they worked and cool. you know, the way they just uh, you know interchanged the eyeballs for different things. So I uh, had a bit of a, bit of a puppet uh rabbit hole experience i don't know there's no way to say like i had a bit of a puppet hole experience yeah that's Doesn't sound right. good. anyways we're gonna move on so um you know it is will soon be christmas yeah uh and this is being released on christmas day uh which obviously means we have to do a special episode about doctor who a show slightly more famous for its own christmas specials uh people know those a little bit more than the fandom files Anyways, mm-hmm. uh, we're lucky to be joined by Simon Garrier, uh, an author of great renown who has been writing books, documentaries, and guides to the Who universe for years. Simon, you are calling in from London. How's it going? It's going very well. How are you? How are you both? We're excited to have you. Yeah, thank you for I know it's a time difference there. It's uh, almost the evening in London, so I appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, it's it's a quarter to five in the evening here, so it's dark and a bit wintry and a bit Christmassy. Oh, that's lovely. Sounds magical. Simon, I think you're the first guest we've had who's had a hand in canon, which is cool. Like, you define oh, okay. things that, yeah. Wow. Well, uh, have I? What did I do? Well, I mean, you've commented on, uh, and you've built encyclopedias that people can reference. Every, everyone else that oh, we've yeah. talked to, they're passionate, but they're sort of adjacent to the, the franchise itself. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm honored. I'm honored <laughs> you think so. Well, we, are, we are honored to have you. And so why don't we start at the beginning? Yeah. Because obviously Doctor, Doctor Who is a big part of your life. When did that start? Were you a big fan as a kid? How old were you? It, it yeah. So. Uh, yeah, Doctor Who is the first thing I remember. Um, my, my earliest memory is of the cliffhanger of episode one of Full Circle from 1980. Uh, a Tom Baker, fourth Doctor story. Um, and what I remember vividly is Tom Baker and Canine crouching in some reeds, watching marsh men emerge from a swamp. Uh, and I would have been four 
um, mm. uh, when that was on. So I was watching it with my uh, elder brother and sister and probably my mum and dad as well. And I was hooked. It, it was just um, the most terrifying, uh, completely incomprehensible adult TV show that um, I was somehow allowed to watch. And, uh, and I still feel a bit like that. And that was your first memory of, of your entire life? Of, of anything. Yeah, of anything. Yeah, yeah. Total blackness until Doctor Who. <laughs> yeah, basically. Basically. <laughs> and so when you were a kid, I mean, it, it, it was different back then. You know, the, the show went on hiatus for a long time. And how did you experience it as a kid? Well, um, when I watched it as a kid, um, everybody watched it. That, that was my experience. Everybody watched Doctor Who and everybody talked about it in school the next week. Uh, and then that was sort of changing by the late 1980s. And I remember going to school. I went to a new school when I was 11. And that coincided with Sylvester McCoy becoming the new doctor. Mm. And I remember the sort of bump of going, oh, people aren't talking about Doctor Who as much as they did. Um, not, it's not everybody's talking about it. It's just a few of us are. Mm. Um, and then the show got uh, taken off the air when I was 13. And... Um, by then, I was aware that it was only me and one or two other people in my class at school who were watching it, because uh, that was kind of the age we were. Um, and I bought an issue of Doctor Who magazine to find out when the series was coming back, because there'd been no, you know, it used to be on every year, and it was getting to the end of the year, and I was thinking, it hasn't been on, what's going on? Mm -hmm. um, so I bought Doctor Who magazine, and it said, you know, there's no news. But also there's going to be these books coming out, uh, a new range of books called The New Adventures, which are going to sort of continue where the TV show had left off. So um, I think I think I just put them down for like the first book was going to come out around the time of my birthday. So I put it down as a birthday present mm -hmm. kind of thing. Uh, and I just stuck with the books. And then the most important thing was that the, um, that range of books allowed anyone to uh, to write for them. Anybody could submit ideas. You didn't need an agent or any sort of history of writing. Um, and I read an interview with a, with a, 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 one of the writers of this range called Paul Cornell, um, who explained exactly how you went about that. And you, you wrote a 5,000-word synopsis and a 5,000-word outline, 5,000-word uh, sample chapter. Um, and I, I, you know, I was like 15 at the time, and I just thought, oh, I could actually do that. That's like a manageable amount of of work and suddenly becoming a writer which had been like becoming an astronaut <laughs> as far as i was concerned it suddenly was like oh i could actually do that as a job um so yes yeah, so i owe it i owe it all to to those books and, and to paul who's who's now one of my my friends so what was your story about the five thousand words treatment oh uh the very first thing i i sent which is awful <laughs> i mean really bad um it was called mondas which, uh, as you may know, is the original planet of the Cybermen. Mm. And it was basically a, a dreadful sort of hodgepodge of sequel ideas. So it was, it was a, a bit of um, uh, Adric, the fifth Doctor's companion, was in it. There were various iterations of Cybermen. It was, yeah, it was, it was dreadful. And I didn't even type it. I handwrote it um, in my illegible handwriting. And, um, and I, and um, yeah, if, if I was sent that sort of synopsis now, I would reject it out of hand. But <laughs> the editor uh, at, at Virgin Books, who were publishing Dr. Ebooks at the time, took the time to write a really detailed response explaining what I needed to, to correct and what, you know, get loads of tips. But more importantly, 
took the sort of trouble to actually go through it. Um, and I think, I think if I just had a standard rejection letter, you know, a form letter, that would have probably killed it dead. My, my aspirations to be a writer dead, but it was so encouraging and so, um, so friendly that I, I just kept going and, and kept sending them stuff. And eventually I sort of wore them down and they were like, if we, if we publish something, will you stop sending us your ideas? <laughs> um, so, so that, that's what, what my career is down to really perseverance. That's really, I mean, so you, they sent you that really long note and like you said, a lot of kids were not fans of it at that point. What do you think it was it the new doctor that turned people off or just growing up and growing pubic hair? What was it that made people uh, less interested? I think, I think the, um, I think the main thing was it was, it was people my age were, were, you know, we were sort of 12, 13 and that was people growing out of it. Uh, And also, you know, at the time, Doctor Who was not so beloved as it as it is now, uh, right. it had the, the, the ratings were tailing off. It wasn't such a big deal. And I think that's a shame, really. I think, I think it hadn't helped that it had been in the press, that it had been going through a bad patch in the sort of mid eighties. There was a lot of, uh, headlines and stuff about trouble behind the scenes. I don't think that helped. Mm. Um, which is a shame because those, those last few years are so full of wonderful, some really exciting storytelling and pushing what you can do. I mean, you know, Remembrance of the Daleks, Sylvester McCoy's Dalek story is such a extraordinary bit of writing. It's such a, and it's so brilliantly made, you know, and they've got no money and they've, they're really pushing against what they can actually do. And it's just, it's just extraordinary. It's an extraordinary bit of television. It still is an amazing bit of television. So it's a shame that people didn't love it as much and, in those years before it came back, mm-hmm. what did you do? Did you just write stories, did you read the magazine? How did that work? Yeah, I, so I was reading Got Who magazine. Um, I was writing stories and sending them off. I was, you know, not just to Doctor Who. I was sending ideas for stories off to anybody who would accept them. Uh, there's a comic called 2000 AD that was um, open for submissions. There were various sci-fi magazines and uh, literary bits and pieces. And I was doing a bit of student journalism and things like that. Um, and, and I was also a student and got, went to university and things like that. And then, um, uh, and yeah, and Dr. Hoover was a sort of minority interest. I remember the local comic shop when I was at university had a lot of Star Trek fans who would buy a lot of Star Trek merchandise. And the Dr. Who stuff was in a corner and kind of unloved and <laughs> a bit derided and whatever. But but the people writing those books were people like Mark Gatiss and Paul Cornell. Uh, Russell T. Davis wrote one of those books. Gareth Roberts wrote one of those books. You know, the people who brought Doctor Who back when it came back in 2005. So mm. I had this kind of, um, I think, I don't think I was alone in this, but I think we were like, uh, you know, uh, uh, we knew the truth. It's like we, we were the holders of the flame, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and we knew Doctor Who was good and that had had potential. And if only uh, people devoted a bit of time and love to it, it was worth, you know, it was worth the effort. Um, and that some of those books are, are really, really good. Um, and, you know, uh, Human Nature was one of those books and it got ad- adapted for uh, a David Tennant uh, episode on TV. Mm. Um, and it and was just, yeah, just really exciting. It was a really exciting time. And because the book's, were a continuous series and because anybody could submit for them. And so they were being discussed in the fanzines of the day and that sort of stuff. But really before the internet, I guess, or before I was on the internet, there was this sense of that you were part of a community for reading them. 
as well. And anybody could, and you could participate because you could submit your ideas for where the books went next. And so, yeah, it's very exciting. It, it seems, um, it seems remarkable now, given the success of it on TV and, and stuff. You couldn't really run it like that now with, with readers submitting ideas for what happened next in the books range. But um, it, was a, it was a very exciting time as far as I was concerned. How has um, the, the fandom changed? Sorry to interrupt. It, you sort of alluded to it being different now. Yeah, I think, I think the most obvious way the fandom's changed is that when I met my wife in uh, 2000, uh, she wasn't my wife at the time, obviously. Um, <laughs> Doctor Who was something you kind of apologised for liking. Um, and she used to um, she used to do a thing of, if we go to a party or like go out or whatever, she'd um, she'd introduce me to people as this is my boyfriend Simon. He's into Doctor Who, knowing that an hour later I'd still be in exactly the same place, still defending <laughs> why I liked this crusty old nonsense and stuff. <laughs> um, and then when it came back, that was all very different. Um, yeah, it's, it's just very odd. Doctor Who was something that I, I had a select bunch of friends that I knew were into it. And your, um, and your future wife, I assume, was not into it. At what point did you... At what at what number date did you tell her you were a, you were a Whovian? <laughs> oh, she she knew when she met me because I, I met her through a Doctor Who friend of mine. Mm-hmm. Um who invited me to a party saying we're having a party and we need some more single men. And because, because I was a Doctor Who fan, I was obviously a single man. And, um, <laughs> and uh, 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 yeah, um, so she knew. Um, and it was kind of tolerated, um, <laughs> but it was something that I did. And she watched, she made a point of watching a couple just, you know, uh, out of a sort of sense of charity, I think. <laughs> um and then, uh, yeah, and then it came back, and it was, it was. I think that the, the things that changed is that there's things like when, um, when the episode Dalek went out about halfway through that first run in 2005. My wife was away visiting her parents that weekend, and through me, she knew Rob Sherman, who wrote it and stuff, um, and got on with him. But, but yeah, she rang me up that evening to say she'd watched it of her own volition. And it's like, <laughs> what? What are you doing? And she was going, oh, it's really. It's a really beautiful episode. I cried a bit. I was like, "What? What? What?" Um, so, yeah, that's that's what changed. Other, I, I already knew Doctor Who was good. It was it was uh, it was everybody else coming on and and going. It's a bit like you know when you go out with somebody and they change their hair and they go, "Your partner's really attractive," and you're like, <laughs> "Yeah, I know." Um, so is she that, now that's a fan? Kind of how it felt. Uh, yeah, she watches it. She watches it. I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure she would describe herself as a fan. I think. I think uh, a casual punter is, is more. Um, but but her frame of reference now, like 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 you know, casual members of the public now know all sorts of bits of Doctor Who history. Mm-hmm. That before the show came back, that was like for the inner circle of us sort of high end nerds. Um, oh. You know, the number of regenerations the Doctor can have, all of this sort of stuff, which, you know, that was that was the stuff for the, the select few. And now everybody knows it. I mean, like, it's it's a huge part of your life. How does that, does, does she must hear about it all the time because you're writing it. You know, do you run ideas by her? And she's like, enough of Doctor Who. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's my life right there. And, uh, <laughs> she's going, are you watching this again? Yes. <laughs> what, what, is, it, is it work? Yes, it's kind of work. Um <laughs> Yeah, so I've got lots of DVDs and books and stuff. 
Um, and my son, who's six, he he's seen a bit of it, um, but he started watching it this year. Um, so yeah, he's got he's got views on Doctor Who now, which is um, a little troubling. Um, <laughs> what does it feel like to work in a world that you've enjoyed since you were a kid? It, it's I imagine it's a series you don't have control over. Do you ever feel disappointed by decisions they make? Well, I guess I, I you know I've always had opinions on stories I like and stories I don't like or or don't like so much or decisions made or, or whatever. Um, but actually, it sounds sounds silly, but I actually quite like Doctor Who when it isn't very good mm-hmm. because I feel like I've got a way in there. You know, if, there, if there's a story, whether it's an old one or a new one, where something hasn't worked, then I feel like if I'd been working on that one, I might have had something to contribute. <laughs> Whereas, you know, if, a re- if you get a really good episode, like, um, like Blink, the David Tennant episode that introduced the Weeping Angels, I sort of watched that going, that's an amazing bit of television. That's, you know, the writing, the directing, the performances are all first class. I would have nothing to contribute there. But, you know, I'd just be getting in the way. Whereas, um, you know, I don't know, it, it would be rude to, to pick an example of something I didn't think were well, but, but, I, I can kind of sit there going, yeah, if I'd been in that meeting, I would have suggested this or I would have contributed that. <laughs> and that's, that's the beauty of Doctor Who, that, that actually it's such a... Uh, the, the, the concept is, is constantly inviting you to anticipate where the story's going, to come up with your own stories, to come up with your own whatever. So, so just as a concept, Doctor Who is really, um, is really good at sort of prompting you to, to, to work out where it goes next and stuff. So, so I think that's part of the appeal of it, really. Um, but yeah, I think, I think also making it and also I've done, you know, I've made some short films. I've, I've worked a bit in, uh, uh, pre-production on television in development on television and various other things and making documentaries. And the thing that I come away with is it's hard enough to get anything made. The, the, the fact that they try to be so ambitious on Doctor Who, it's, it's just a wonder they get any of it finished at all. Um, but it's not all just you know, broken and not working. And it, it's just the, the, the stuff that they put into it, that the, given the, um, the resources and time and money that they just don't have, it's, um, it just makes me, it fills me with all the more awe watching what they produce because it's, it's so extraordinary. So when you are, when you're working on these documentaries and the, and the books and whatnot, how closely do you work with the BBC on that? Because like you said, you were, you know, you've been in pre-production and things like that. Yeah, so uh, it varies a bit. Uh, there was a stage between about 2010 and 2012 where uh, I was reading scripts as they were um, going into production. I was I went to the set a couple of times. I uh, interviewed lots of the cast and crew about what was coming up. I saw some rough cuts of episodes and stuff. And um, I must admit, that rather spoiled the TV show for me. Mm-hmm. Um I found, because um, what happens is you're, you're reading it, you're often reading the scripts in sort of an open plan office with a lot of noise around you. And you're just trying to get through it as quickly as possible to find out all the stuff that you need to know to run your features and to base a documentary about. And then when you actually watch it, whatever it is, six months later, your response is not, oh, this is really exciting. Your response is, oh, this isn't how I pictured it. Or, <laughs> oh, they've, they've cut that bit. Or, oh, that bit wasn't in the script when I read it. So it kind of, um, 
it, it just kills this sort of emotional effect of the episodes. You you can't lose yourself in any of the stories. Um, so I I stopped doing that because um, I moved off the the magazine that I was working on at the time. I stopped doing that in the last few episodes of Matt Smith. So mm. I think the Crimson Horror was the last one I read before mm. it was on. Um, and immediately just started enjoying the episodes a lot more. So, when, um, so now, now I try and avoid knowing what's coming next if I can. So when you like thought with them for the books you're writing, like do they, how much influence do they want to have? I mean, I, I you write guide, guides and documentaries and like novels. So how, how what are they? What's their involvement? So uh, what happens is you, um, whatever it might be, whether it's a magazine or a book or whatever, everything gets approved by the production team in Cardiff in Wales. Um, so, for example, on uh, on a book, I will have a conversation with the publishers of the books, BBC Books, um, and we will come up with an outline, a sort of two-page outline for what we think the book should be and mm-hmm. the tone of it and what it should cover. That then goes to the production team in Cardiff, and they may have some notes, or they may just say, get on with it. Um, and that's, you know, I write... Uh, audio drama uh, Doctor Who for a company called Big Finish mm-hmm. and it's the same process you come up with an idea for a story you sort of argue it out with the editors at <laughs> Big Finish and when they're happy with it that goes over to Cardiff for approval um, and what they're looking for is you know does it does it fit with the tone of the series does it feel like Doctor Who you know does, is the character the Doctor right and also is it a story we've similar to what we've got coming up because I wouldn't know that Right. Um, or does it, you know, does it contradict something we're going to do or, or whatever? Um, and then once they've approved that idea, um, which you may have to change to fit in with what they've got coming up, you go away and write it and then they approve the finished version. Um, and, uh, and sometimes they make suggestions and sometimes they have notes about, you know, can you not do this or whatever? Um, but yeah, it's all, it's all, I don't know. I've been doing it a long time, so I've been I've been writing Doctor Who stuff for fifteen years, so I'm quite familiar with the process, and I and I do know Doctor Who tediously well. So <laughs> I, I do know the kinds of things that they are likely to flag up or not like or whatever. So you know, they, they want the Doctor to be front and centre. They don't want him to use violence as a solution. Mm-hmm. You can't really use the TARDIS as a solution to a story unless you do it particularly well. Um, all those sorts of things, you know, and um, uh, yeah, so it's, it's very, it's uh, it seems to work very well and very smoothly, um, um, and is I don't I don't know I don't I don't have uh, any great insights other, other than to uh, than to say you know they suggest stuff as it comes up really. Is that like um, Moffat or I mean I know he's leaving, but was it him his team or is it other people that that hold that kind of? I know Star Wars they have a whole. You know, group, you know, story group, and they they look over the comics and they look, help with the movies and the books. But you know, they didn't they didn't tell Ryan Johnson what to do, obviously. So who who is involved with in that? Yeah, so it's varied a bit. I mean, we we sort of uh, will refer to stuff going to Cardiff, mm-hmm. um, and Cardiff, you know, for practical per- point of view, tends to be one or two people within the department. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it was uh, uh, one of the script editors, a guy called Gary Russell, for a while. Uh, it was, um, well, I was getting stuff approved by one of the other script editors, a guy called Scott Hancock, and then 
uh, Edward Russell, who's the uh, brand manager who's leaving at the end of this year, he was doing approvals. Um, but what they'll do is they, they have an oversight of what's going on in the production team, but they'll refer it upwards if they need to. Um, so a lot of the time, you don't need Stephen Moffat to have an oversight on everything um, because it's quite clear if, if you're in the department and you've read the upcoming scripts, you know what the plots are. So, so you know if there's any conflicts or concerns and you know the kind of things that they're planning to do. But if there's something in the in a story uh, that, that you think Stephen Moffat needs to, needs to respond to, you, you go to him. So I gather that um, Nicholas Briggs, who's the, um, he's the voice of the Daleks, but he's also the executive producer at Big Finish. I gather he and Stephen Moffat have talked quite a lot about, you know, what the, what things Big Finish might do and how they might dovetail with the TV show. But um, that's a bit above my pay grade. I, I just do as I'm told, really. <laughs> are, are you expected to write for the current iteration of The Doctor when you're writing stories? Well, whatever they want. Whatever okay. they want. What, what tends to happen is I get asked, we've got an idea for, we've got this actor, we've got this doctor, we want to do a story that's, you know, maybe something set on a spaceship or something set in history. Um, we're running a bit late and we need it quick. Uh, that's te- that tends to be what happens. So I'm given Doctor Companion and a rough idea of a of a setting or a, or you know something to give me a pointer. Um, so for for example, I was given um, can you do the first Doctor and his companion Stephen and Sarah from uh, a 1965-66 story, The Dalek Master Plan, and I'd written for them before, mm. um, and we wanted to have the feel of we want to do. Um, the Sontarans, and we want it to have the feel of an old war film. Wow. was what they gave me. So I was like, yeah, all right. So I rang my brother-in-law, who's quite into his war films, and we had a bit of a chat about what war films were good and what hadn't already been um, used in Doctor Who. And he said, well, one of my favourite war films is the um, Guns of Navarone. So I watched the Guns of Navarone, and you can't really just swap Nazis for Sontarans in that. You've got to... <laughs> You know, you use it as a sort of starting point and then go off in your own direction. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did submit it under the name The Sontarans of Navarone, I think, um, just for my own entertainment. Right. And so <laughs> is it is it like uh, how many do you pump out per year? It seems like you they give you real like last minute uh, requests. Yeah, I, I, it varies a bit. It varies a bit. There was a point where I wrote a, a 10,000 word play, a sort of hour long play, one a month for about oh. about 14 15 months um Jeez. but i couldn't i couldn't sustain that um <laughs> that was a, that was a bit um yeah i think i think some of them are not as good as they should have been um because i just went a bit peculiar doing that um but i i'm a freelance writer so i just write all the time mm-hmm. where do you get the all the ideas just, for those things like there's that's so much i, I work on a, like one thing for like six months and I, my brain feels like, exhausted i i don't know i just the ideas are the easy bit. Um, I'm having stupid ideas all the time for <laughs> stories, and, and and it might be um, it might be a line of dialogue, or it might be a a situation, or it might be a character, or you know, I've just got a tube, and some I hear somebody say something funny on the train, and I you know I just write that write that down, um, and not quite sure how I'm going to use it, and then and then you know they come at me, and I'm like, oh, I've got well, I've got my notebook. And I'll go through my notebook and, oh, I could do that or I could do this. Or, mm. um, but, I'm con- uh, but, you know, part of my training as a journalist 
was you've got to be constantly looking for stories. Mm-hmm. So I'm constantly, you know, I'm always looking for stuff. I'm always, you know, chatting up mates and people at parties and finding out what they do for a living. And yeah, so I've never met a lumberjack before. What's what's the one thing that when you see lumberjacks on TV, what's the one thing that they get wrong and you always get a fact back? It's like, right, I'm having that. Um, so yeah, so I do so easy. I, I, I think, I think even if I wasn't doing this, I'd be constantly thinking of Doctor Who stories all the time. Um, <laughs> do you have an affection for a specific doctor? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I have to be careful what I say though, because I, sure. I know some of them. Um, <laughs> Which one do you hate uh, the most? I, I, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you see, the thing is, the worst thing is, I, I actually know the companions, quite a few of the companions, quite well. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been to a couple of companions' houses and stuff like that, and birthday pies and things and I was asked at a convention who my favourite companion was by one of the companions and there were like four of them in the, in the front <laughs> row of me and they made me answer so it's like oh this is um, I'm going to get whatever I say I'm going to get killed after this so, uh, um, what did you say? so yeah I mean I, I have a, I guess because Tom Baker was the first Doctor I watched mm-hmm. as a kid he in my head he's kind of the Doctor mm. and everybody else follows in his shadow um but but i like them all and and i find it exciting whenever you're you know because i get told like you've got a right for this doctor you're immediately going right i'm going to watch some more of his even though i know those episodes i'm going to watch them again and look for something i can use and look for a you know how do i make this story specifically that doctor uh yeah yeah so so i don't mind really i, I actually like the variety i think that's, that's part of the fun of it that's great and so what other writing do you do? Like, is Doctor Who a majority of your of your writing? Uh, it um, it can be, it can be, but I'm freelance, so I do all sorts of things. I've I've just finished. I, I did have a, a freelance job uh, working for the House of Lords uh, as a reporter, oh. uh, which I I did for thirteen and a half years, um, and uh, uh, I took that on um, just as a freelance job, and it just sustained itself but now I'm, I'm i'm doing a lot more childcare, uh so i gave that up uh a couple of months ago um but i write for i write film reviews and stuff for the medical journal the lancet and uh i've got a tv show in um pre-production or, or in development at the mm. moment uh i've had that. stuff uh, it, I'm, i have to be careful what i say but it's a it's a um it's an animation uh, action adventure sci-fi series aimed at eight to twelve-year-olds. Um, uh, and if it happens, I mean, you know, the, the the you know how these things are. There are lots of things going to development and never emerge, but um, uh, it all is looking quite positive, and it's really fun and exciting to work with. And I'm working with a really nice team. Um, and I've I've made documentaries for BBC Radio, and I've got some stuff that's being discussed with producers at the moment. Um, so yeah, but anything, anything really. Um, when you're when you're making these these uh, stories for Doctor Who, are there certain things that you really wish you could get, could have gotten in there, but you just you know it didn't make sense for the for the uh, for the franchise overall? It just couldn't slip in there. Oh yeah, all sorts of things. All sorts of mostly, you know, stuff for my own entertainment. Really, <laughs> um, I wanted to because uh, I, I made lots of documentaries for the DVDs, the sort of behind-the-scenes documentaries, and there's various things I pitched that didn't get picked up that I'd have liked to have done. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to do there's a there's a um, 
1969 story, second Doctor story called called The Seeds of Death, where the um, the Ice Warriors' weapon to take over the Earth looks conspicuously like a lot of um, a lot of bubbles because the BBC special effects team had a bubble machine, you know, like you get in there. Um, and there's an amazing cliffhanger where basically Patrick Trout gets buried in bubbles. Um, and when his companion rescues him, Wendy Padbury playing Zoe, you can see on screen she's laughing because it's so ridiculous. Um, and I wanted to do a DVD extra showing how that scene was made, basically building a bubble machine and, um, and larking about. And uh, I thought that would be really fun. And um, my, my commissioning editor a lovely man called Dan Hall. He was just saying, what, are you serious? I was like, yes, I would love to make this. Um, and he it's just like, it just, it just seems really stupid. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's exactly, that's exactly the idea. That's my favorite um, kind of idea. It's as dumb as possible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I've done, yeah, yeah, I've done various, I've pitched various, uh, various ideas for, you know, audio adventures and books and stuff. But again, I've gone, I've got this great idea and uh, the people I'm pitching it to are going, what? what? Well, really? That's what you want to do? No, we're not doing that. So, um, and you know, maybe one day I'll, uh, one day I'll convince people. I want to do a story that because uh, I said I worked for the House of Lords. I want to do a story set in the Houses of Parliament mm. that's all based on what I know about parliamentary procedure um, for my own entertainment. <laughs> and uh, I've pitched that to a few people, and they've all gone. This is this is just the weirdest idea ever. And why, why would why would why would anybody enjoy this? I don't care. I want to do it. I would. That's, 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 yeah, yeah. Do you write fan fiction just for yourself? Uh, not really. Not really, because I I tend to. Um, it's too much effort for me yeah. to write fan fiction. Um, I tend to have ideas going. I know nobody will ever you know, commission this. And I have to, I kind of have to write them down in my notebook just to get them out of my head. <laughs> um, so I've got, I've got, you know, like, um, I've got one line notes on what could be fan fiction if I wasn't so lazy. In a um, way, you could pay, I mean, you basically write professional fan fiction in the best way possible. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, yeah. The idea of not getting paid, I just, I just don't do it. Um, <laughs> So what do you make of you know, Stephen Moffat's leaving Doctor Who after the episode that airs uh, Christmas, obviously? And so what do you make of the big transition since you're, you're, you're an insider? We can say that, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I've known, I've known Stephen since the late 90s. Um, you know, when I said Doctor Who fandom was relatively small when the TV show wasn't on the air, there, there was a pub in London where once a month Doctor Who fandom met um, and you could go to that pub. It was great. Um, and I met, that's where I met the mate who introduced me to my wife. So, you know, that, that was a, that was a good place. What was the pub um, called? It was called the Fitzroy Tavern. And, and Doctor Who fans still meet there once a month. It's huh. just, it's, it's, uh, it, you know, it's just an ordinary pub night. But, but they're, 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 uh, in the days when there was no Doctor Who, if you wanted to talk about Doctor Who, your, your, you know, sort of area and places that you could do that were fairly limited. So, um, uh, whereas now, you know, if you want to talk about Doctor Who, you can go online and you can lots of like-minded people and whatever. You're not struggling to find people who who know what the caves of Androzani is. Whereas in the in the dark times in the nineties, that was <laughs> that was definitely a thing. Um, you know, and if 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 another TV show made a reference to Doctor Who, even if it was a really uh, a bleak one, it was like a light in the dark. You know, no. I remember um, 
I remember watching uh, Russell T. Davis's Queer as Folk, and one of the characters in it is a Doctor Who fan, oh, and yeah. just going, they've made Vince a, a, a Doctor Who fan, mm-hmm. and he's nice, and he's not an idiot. <laughs> I've never seen that before. Wow. You know, I've seen Doctor Who fans portrayed on television before, and, that, and I was just like, that's, that's amazing. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I, I know Stephen a bit. I know him, you know, I've chat to him and stuff. Um, and I have corresponded with Chris Chibnall a bit. Um, I tried to get him in a DVD documentary years ago. that didn't work out for a number of practical reasons. And I've, you know, I've emailed him back and forth a bit since then. Um, but really, I don't have any great, as I say, I try and avoid finding out what's going on. Um, so I don't really know anything other than, you know, what's been announced officially. But it all seems very exciting. Um, the, bi- the big thing for me about the transition is how excited other people are. People who I was not aware were interested in Doctor Who or, or who, who clearly weren't interested in Doctor Who are very excited about Jodie Whittaker and about... Uh, and even Bradley Walsh, who, you know, is a, is a very unexpected... Um, sort of casting choice because of what he's done before. Um, he's not the sort of person you'd immediately think, oh yeah, he, he's, uh, he's Doctor Who material. But the fact that he's, he's not thought of in that way um, makes, the cho- makes putting him in it very interesting, I think. Um, he'll, he'll appeal to people who wouldn't normally watch Doctor Who, I think, which is, um, is all to the good, really. Mm. Um, so yeah, it all seems very exciting. Lots of lots of excitement amongst people I you know I know, but I'm kind of purposefully not asking the people I know working on it what's going on because um, that would spoil it. That's interesting. So I'd be like obsessed with finding out every little every little detail. <laughs> I think a lot of people would be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, but you see, I've been there and I've done it, and mm. and the thing is that you find out and you know what's happening, and then you can't say anything right. until everybody until everybody's seen it anyway. And then you're kind of like, yeah, but my great insight is that that sentence was slightly different when it was written. Mm-hmm. And nobody cares. You know, <laughs> they're like, oh, well, that's interesting, Simon. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, it kind of, my, my, my desperation to know what was coming up um, has kind of been way. Now I'm much more interested in finding out about old Doctor Who and finding new stuff out about old Doctor Who. So uh, I wrote a book about, um, a book that came out earlier this year about the evil of the Daleks, which is a um, a Patrick Trout story from 1967, mm-hmm. and um, and I wrote it so I had an excuse to go to the BBC's written archive centre, which is where they keep all the documents. Mm-hmm. And I just went through all the paper. I went through all the paper files and found out all sorts of excru- excruciatingly nerdy facts <laughs> about how the production was put together and how they chose the locations and like. The, the location manager, Timothy Coombe, who was later director on uh, Doctor Who, he was actually the production assistant because they didn't have an assistant, they didn't have a location manager. But he found the house they used and he then went to the local pub because he um, he wanted to know who owned the field next to it because they thought they could use the field at the same time for another bit of the story. Um, so I know because of the memos that are still in the file, I know at what time he went to which pub uh, on his location scout, which I'm delighted with. No, you know, it's, it's of no interest to in anybody else. What do you do with else. this knowledge? But, well, I, I put it in my book and, yeah. uh, and I shared it. 
And uh, <laughs> and then I found out some other stuff, like like the Evil of the Daleks introduced as a new companion. Um, and we it had been published before that somebody else uh, so it introduces Victoria Waterfield as played by the, the lovely Deborah Watling who I, who I worked with at Big Finish uh, a few years ago um, but she replaced somebody else there was another actress uh, originally cast as Victoria and nobody quite knew what had happened and I was able to find out and and uh, with a bit of detective work I made some leaps of uh, logic between the bits of paperwork that I found and then found some other stuff. And I eventually spoke to the woman who had originally been cast as Victoria. And she told me exactly what happened, Wow! Um, which is very exciting. Um, <laughs> and I knew I was onto something because I mentioned to one of my, uh, one of my friends at Doctor Who magazine that I was work- that I was on this trail. And I suddenly had lots of my other Doctor Who friends going, so what have you found out? What have you found out? <laughs> right. And um, I, was getting email, I was getting emails from people I hadn't spoken to for years going, <laughs> hi, Simon, I, I hear you're on the trail. What can you tell me? Wow. I, I can tell you to buy my book. That's what I can tell you. <laughs> well, yeah, because you say like, oh, this is only interesting to me, but clearly there's this huge demand for this stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, an American fandom, it may not be quite as uh, robust, but it's still really, you go to Comic-Con, there's plenty of Dr. Cosplay. And so what do you think it was that not only re sparked like interest in it, but this intense passion for literally everything, uh, Doctor Who. Well, I think uh, I was saying earlier that I'm amazed that the program actually gets made because it's so hard. Mm-hmm. You know, they 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 make it as difficult to make as they possibly can. <laughs> they're, they're they're constantly going, how can we make this more complicated for ourselves? <laughs> um, and it you know it has one standing set. It has uh, lots of explosions, lots of prosthetics. They try not to use the same monsters over and over again. So it's constantly trying to do new things. Um, and so so the stories are very exciting, but actually the production process is very exciting. And I think part of being a Doctor Who fan is not just following the stories, but it's also following how it's made. Mm-hmm. Um, and And that is just as interesting as... And it's exciting and ridiculous, as um, as the stories it tells as well. So, so I think that, that's part of the same thing. Do you think um, BBC like doesn't put enough resources into it? Because constantly people constantly talk about how like it doesn't uh, you know have a budget. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. I think that's a that's a conversation for the producers who actually know what the budgets are and stuff. The thing is that that even if you gave them more money, <laughs> they'd still be trying to push. Mm-hmm. They'd still be trying to push what they can do, um, and I'm not sure necessarily that more money is the best thing. I think part of the part of the appeal of it is the fact that they're they're pushing against what they can do. I don't think I don't think sci-fi shows with with bigger budgets are, are necessarily better yeah. um, for it. They tend to look much slicker, but I'm not sure they're as as involving and exciting. Um, but I spoke to Danny Hargreaves, the, uh, who's in charge of the special effects, um, and, he, and you know he basically does the explosions on set. And I was saying, you know, what what are you competing with when you're doing Doctor Who? And he said, we're competing with the Marvel superhero movies. Mm. That's wow. what people. That's what people watching Doctor Who. That's their kind of frame of reference. Yeah. Mm. And he said, we have nothing like the budget, and a TV show could never have anything like the budget to compete with that. So he said, so we have to think about what we do 
how do we use the money to make it look like we've spent, you know, that, that kind of resource? Um, so we said we, we have to think more intelligently about how we use the effects. Um, and that challenges us to do more interesting, visually exciting things. Um, I find that really exciting as a, as a, you know, as a fan, just, just understanding that sort of thought process. That that's such a good point. I never realized it. I I mean my my personal doctor was Tenet. I I was addicted to Tenet and Rose. And I'm thinking back as you're describing the budget, all of my favorite moments that just wrecked me emotionally were like limited set. Like there yeah. really couldn't have been that much special effects going on in all those scenes. But Yeah, yeah. And and so you rely on you rely on the writing and the performances and the emotion. Um, you know, when I'm writing audio for Big Finish, the thing that I'm trying to to do more than anything, the thing that's in my head more than anything, is how do I stop this sounding like two actors stood next to each other in booths in a recording studio? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm constantly going, I need background effects. I need it to sound that they're in an interesting space. I need it to keep moving so you get this sense that they're not standing still. And I need to keep varying the tone so so the story keeps sort of flitting. So you, as you're listening to it, it's a, it's a sort of a resting experience to listen to um, so that you never get a sense of it standing still. And that, that's, you know, having compared notes with friends of mine who've worked on a TV show, that's the same sort of, that's the same sort of thinking that they're doing. If you watch a lot of the Russell T. Davis um era of Doctor Who there's an awful lot of um, there's an awful lot of places they go to where they go up and then down so like in New Earth they go to the top of a hospital and then they ride down the, the cord of the lift shaft mm-hmm. um, if you actually think about how they make it it's all on one set it's all on one flat right. um, studio set so the idea of going upstairs and downstairs and whatever is all a way of breaking that that sort of um, that fixed level that sort of horizontal plane um, and I, you know, all of those things just make make it feel bigger, and then you're in a bigger, more real world. Um, so yeah, all, all sorts of stuff like that. I find I find fascinating. That is so interesting. I mean, I guess the TARDIS functions that way because it's suggesting something infinite, but really, it's this set you've seen a million times. That's exactly, great. huh? Exactly. And so you, we talked very briefly about the new uh, female Doctor, Jodie Whittaker. What do you make of, you're obviously excited, what do you make of the sort of backlash that's happened? Because as we all know, there's some, like anything else in society, there's some progressive fans and some troglodyte fans. Uh, yeah. Um, well, I must admit, I've not really seen any of the backlash. Um, I've not really, I've heard, apparently, people have, people have objected, but I've not really seen any of that. Hmm. Uh, I don't know. I think, I mean, there's always an objection to the new doctor. There's always people going, mm-hmm. oh, I don't like who they've cast or, you know, and I, I, I still haven't forgiven Peter Davison for taking over from Tom Baker because <laughs> um, that broke my heart when I was four. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, people were complaining about, you know, is, is David Tennant when he was cast, is he too young? Is he too sort of traditionally male action hero or, or male lead kind of character. Is that what Doctor Who is? Mm-hmm. I don't know. You just kind of go... But but also, you know, people complaining about the casting of Catherine Tate because she was a comedian before they'd seen her in Doctor Who where she played it straight. And, and 
you know, gave a really moving performance as Donna. So, yeah, I, I think, yeah, people are going to say it, but, but wait and see, wait and see what she's like. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I, I don't know anywhere near as much as you do, but Doctor Who's always had controversy about the characterization of the Doctor. I remember feeling so connected to the idea that he was in love with Rose, and yet I had Whovian fans who were saying that that wasn't, it couldn't be canon, that he was attached to one human that way. He's a pimp. Yeah, I, I don't know. That, that, that strikes me as gatekeeping. Yeah. I, I, um, you know, we don't know. When we first met Doctor Who, he had a granddaughter. Mm-hmm. Um, Susan, you know, traveling with him in the very first episode in the 60s, his granddaughter. And, and what? So that's, that's not really, you know, you don't want to take that literally. You don't want to, <laughs> isn't that? Because I think if she's not his granddaughter and they're pretending, that's weirder. <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> um, so I, I assume he had relationships and stuff. And he, you know, there's a, there's a, a very early episode, a very early story, the Aztecs, where the first doctor gets engaged by mistake, um, <laughs> over a cup of hot chocolate. And, um, and it's played really, it's re- played really sweetly. Like, yeah, he, he, he's got, you know, an emotional connection to this woman. He mm-hmm. doesn't want to hurt her. He doesn't want to just run away. And so, and it's a love story basically. Mm-hmm. And, and it's no different to when a companion falls for somebody and gets entangled and, you know, st- you know they're still going to leave in the TARDIS, but they've made this connection to someone. Um, it's a very similar, it's, it's played in, in just that way. Um, and why not? Why not? And, you know, Patrick Trout, the enemy of the world, the great joy of the 1968 story, the, the enemy of the world, coming back to the archive, having been missing for years. Mm-hmm. Um, when when we finally got to see that again in in 2013, you go Patrick Trout is flirting with Astrid clearly in that, and it feels extremely modern. It's a 50 year old story, but but there's Doctor Who being twinkly and a bit mischievous with this woman who's holding him at gunpoint, and you just go, that's what that's what Matt Smith would do. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like I mean, so you were a big fan back in the day when no one really cared. You go into the bar where you know just a few people went, went uh, every month. And now it's blown up, right? Like it's, everyone loves it. We're talking about it here in America. Do you, you mentioned gatekeeping and everyone feeling different ways about Doctor Who. Do you feel like there's some sort of, is there any sort of bitterness amongst people who are old school fans? Like, you know, you guys didn't get it uh, when I loved it. You guys are, you know, Johnny come lately's or whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've seen that. I, I have seen it. I guess I felt it a bit in in a certain way. But I think I think the... Um, the thing that's very clear, if you talk to Stephen Moffat or if you talk to Russell T. Davis, who were in charge of Doctor Who, they are very clear that they're not, they're, they might be in charge of Doctor Who now, but they don't own it. It's not theirs. Right. Mm. They're kind of custodians of it. Um, and they're both very careful not to, not to be too prescriptive about the, the, the legend, about the, the mythology of it. So, you know, Stephen's very careful about the war doctor not telling not not underlining the the war doctor is or isn't a sort of chronological doctor so if you want you can make the war doctor the ninth doctor and if you want the war doctor is an exception and the ninth doctor is christopher eccleston and and so there's a bit of wiggle room and and there's a bit in um the waters of mars the penultimate david tennant story where he talks about fixed points of in time, which is something that, that he's talked about in several episodes. Mm. And then halfway through that, Russell undercuts it and goes, but what do I know? It's only a theory. <laughs> um, 
And you just go, that's, that's great, because that's very generous. That's basically going, you can, you can make it what you want. And, and, and people will. They, you know, the, the, next, the next doctor, the next producers of Doctor Who are not bound by their predecessors. They can, they can make it whatever they want. And, and it's better for that. Because mm-hmm. otherwise you get, otherwise you get, you know, you can see it in the sort of early 80s. You can see in a story like Arc of Infinity, um, which launched the, the 20th season of Doctor Who, where they go back to the Doctor's home planet. And you have these discussions about, like, Gallifrey and lore and how the, how the Time Lords work, which is all based on previous stories. And you mm-hmm. kind of go, can you just cut to the bit where you start shooting and chasing and stuff? <laughs> I don't, don't care about any of this. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can get bogged down in that kind of detail. And, and actually shaking things up a bit and, and doing something different is, is what makes it exciting. So Doctor Who's a show about change and, and things moving on. So um, I don't know. I bet people who wanted to be like more like the past are kind of missing the point, I think. Hmm. And what's interesting, like you said, like it doesn't really belong to anyone, right? Like it's... Uh... Is, I mean, it belongs to BBC, but in a way, like Stephen Moffat was just the caretaker. It's sort of a thing that's bigger than any one person or any one mm-hmm. uh, place. Yeah, and, and importantly, that's really important. When William Hartnell was no longer able to carry on being the Doctor because of the, you know, his ill health and the, and the sheer strain of the production, they, um, they were thinking, what we'll do is we'll, we'll, is we'll make him younger. We'll, we'll get somebody to play a younger version of William Hartnell. And then they went, no, much better it will be, it will appeal to a leading man better if they can make it something of their own. So rather than the doctor getting younger, he turns into somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, so even the part is not owned by anybody. Actually, you are replaceable. And, and the production team is replaceable. The writers are replaceable. The producers are replaceable. Nobody has a final say on it. And, uh, and as I said earlier, you know, part of the, part of the joy of reading those books in the nineties was that feeling that you could participate um, and I think that is a big part of Doctor Who, that feeling that, that anyone can have a go. If, you know, it might not get on TV, but if you want to write a Doctor Who story, you can. And you can come up with the rules and define what it is. And, and actually, it's so all you have to do is land the TARDIS somewhere. <laughs> and you've got a story. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter where it lands. It, it, wherever it lands, the moment the Doctor steps out of it, something weird is going to happen. So right. you've, got a, you've got a story. So, so what are your what are your next steps? What do you have coming out soon? What are, do you have documentaries? Do you have books coming out? So, what what can people uh, who just want to jump on board with you find next? Uh, so, I've just had uh, various bits and pieces out. Uh, 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 coming out in January in the states is uh, Doctor Who: The Book of Universal Records. Um, which is uh, what it says on the tin. Basically, I have written about the um, the worst weapons in the universe, according to Doctor Who, uh, the Doctor Who kisses the most people on screen, uh, <laughs> everything I could think of, um, some funny ones, some serious ones, some ones where I have to go into some detail to explain them, uh, some one-liners, uh, and just, uh, as I was saying earlier, you know, just trying to find a new new things to say and new, new things to find out. So I, um, I found, I ended up um, paying for the birth certificate of the earliest born person ever to appear in Doctor Who, um, <laughs> just to prove, just to prove that he was older than it was given on the internet, which I'm very, I'm very proud of. New research. <laughs> That's um, incredible. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I added, I, I added six months to the claim on, uh, on the internet uh, about how old he was. Wow! Um, Take that internet. And, 
Yeah, 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 definitely, definitely. Um, uh, and uh, I've written, I've written the notes for uh, Doctor Who Paper Dolls, which is a book of Doctor Who Paper Dolls, uh, illustrated by the amazing uh, Ben Morris, uh, mm-hmm. who I worked with on on books before. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have, um, I've just had a big finish play called The Outliers, uh, out which sets the second Doctor. Um, Ben, Polly, and Jamie uh, in a story set in a mine in space, um, and stars uh, Alistair Petrie from uh, Rogue One as a uh, rather magnificent villain called Richard Tipple, uh, who who basically talks in management speak, um, which was stuff lots of management speak I'd heard as a freelancer in various jobs over the years, and I've just been <laughs> collecting it and storing it um, for use at some point, um, and then. What else? Uh, That's a ton. <laughs> the is, yeah, the track that I've got some stuff coming out in 2018, but I can't talk about it yet. It hasn't been announced yet. So right. um, that's that's when they they lock me in a cupboard and throw away the key. Uh, <laughs> is that a regular often so thing more, that happens to you? <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. Oh, and, and I've written for the Doctor Who magazine yearbook. So I interviewed the woman who played Alpha Centauri in oh. uh, The Empress of Mars, who's 94-year-old Isan Churchman. And she played Alpha Centauri in the Peladon stories in the 1970s, and she was lovely. Wow. Um, so that was very nice. That was a very nice conversation. Wow. Are you like at the point where, like, if you find out something new about Doctor Who, you're like, wow, how do I, like, how do you not know everything? Yeah. <laughs> but you see, there's, uh, there's, there's a healthy competition between me and my colleagues. So mm. there's, there's, a, there's a few of us all digging, looking for new stuff, um, and all being extremely smug and, and, um, <laughs> Uh, pleased with ourselves when we find it and showing off um, <laughs> uh, any any detail at all, no matter how small or inconsequential, can be used for the um, the game of boasting, um, which we're all playing. Do you ever make anything up just because they're like they can't prove you wrong? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's tempting. No, no, no. It's got to because you've got to show you're working. So you've got to, but you know, this right. is where I found it. This is what the sources are. Ah. Um, mm-hmm. And, a, and a, a good a good bit of deductive research is, is the bit that gets you the respect. <laughs> when I say the respect. Absolutely. Well, look, how can people find you online uh, if they want to follow you on Twitter or read your books? Like, how can people get in touch? Uh, uh, you can, uh, yeah, you can search for my name, but I'm on Twitter as uh, uh, Nothing Tralala, so, uh, uh, which is a reference to Labyrinth, the uh, David Bowie uh, Henson movie. How do you- um, how do you not do have I, uh, not a Doctor Who reference as your uh, Twitter handle? Yeah. Oh, because I um, I thought that'd be too obvious, and I was <laughs> you know I was trying to look I was I was trying to look cool, and um, I thought I'll go for a nerdy reference, but not a Doctor Who one, because that's like, <laughs> do you see what I did? That's like that. That's like me being clever. Oh, <laughs> subverting expectations. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah yeah. Uh, you can you can. Um, see me licking my finger and wiping my eyebrows with a kind of uh is that, is that, what, is that what the cool kids do? i don't know yeah, that's, sure, what, yeah. Yeah. that's what i do and i'm cool yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah so it's a it's a zero and then t-r-a-l-a-l-a on twitter awesome well uh, and emily how can people get in touch with you uh i am emily g monster on twitter and uh, I'm Jordan Zacharin. I'm not going to spell it this time. I'm no longer spelling it. Nice. Emily makes fun of me every time I do. <laughs> uh, hopefully, uh, Simon, I hope you have a Merry Christmas. Listen, Our listeners, I hope you have a uh, Merry Christmas or any other holiday that you celebrate, you know, mm-hmm. or not not a holiday. 
I think Simon really? would say happy Christmas, actually. Yes, that's true. Yeah. He would say. I'd, 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 I'd be like Dr. Hugh and wish uh, a Merry Christmas to all of you at home. Oh, There you go. Well, with that, this is the Fandom Files. Follow us on at Fandom Files Sci-Fi. Subscribe, download, uh, give us a good review. Give us five stars, please. This is all we really have. Uh, <laughs> that'll be our Christmas gift. Yes. If you made it this far, you clearly like it or you fell asleep <laughs> to our sweet voices. Uh, until then, we will talk to you next year. Yeah. On the Fandom Files. Thank you.